Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Robert Greeno. This is Robert Greeno. General Porter. General Porter. All hands on your bottom station. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my ever-genial co-host, Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And there's a reminder that those that are with us live, uh, go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page. There you'll find the chat room where the usual suspects are already starting to take their seats. If you have some observations or you have some questions you would like for us to direct our guest, direct to our guest, that's a perfect place to put it. Uh, we'll both be monitoring it during the course of this show, and uh, we'll be more than happy to steal your ideas if they're better than ours. Um, also, if you're new to the show or you have to jump off, and uh, go do something else, you can always go back to the archive over at Blog Talk Radio and uh, listen to what you missed. Also, occasionally, for those that do join us live, we'll keep talking after the 60-minute mark. Uh, your audio will go dead, but uh, the uh, recording is still going forward, and you can catch all the post-show couple of minutes as our guests finish their question there. But let's go ahead and get on with the show. We're going to put on our, uh, our our JPME purple today, and we're not going to stick with maritime issues because our topic at HAM really applies uh, to everybody that works in the uh, in the military arena, regardless of which service you have. And in the profession of arms, um, the Navy at least has shown for quite a while that it believes that uh, a naval officer's intellect should be primarily technical focused, uh, the old STEM degree. Um, but uh, as our guest may outline, there's a little bit more to it perhaps than a strict technician. And if you want to create a cadre of leaders, you know, how do you look at training them intellectually, getting them the skills and the critical thinking that you need to be able to confront not just the challenges you think that they're going to run into, but as we often see, when the uh, theoretical actually becomes the practical, uh, the, the unknown things and the challenges that come up, they may not have an answer readily in front of them. And our guest for the full hour to discuss this general topic and more is Major Matt Cavanaugh, United States Army. He is currently assigned as an assistant professor in military strategy at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Prior to heading to West Point, Matt was a strategic planner at the Pentagon and has uh, served with the 2nd Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, 
with multiple deployments to Iraq in the Fallujah, Ramali, and Tel Afar area. He has a master's in strategic studies from Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, and is currently working on his PhD dissertation on generalship at the University of Reading over in the UK. He has been a fellow uh, and is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Civil Military Operations. He's been published with several peer-reviewed military and academic journals. And on top of it all, he is the editor over at warcouncil.org, where you can find links to some of his articles over on my homepage. And warcouncil.org is a site dedicated to the study of the use of force. Matt has represented the U.S. in an official capacity in 10 countries, including Iraq, Kuwait, Norway, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Latvia, and last but not least, Great Britain. Matt, welcome to Midrats. Show before, and uh, I've listened to the show before, and I love it. And uh, I'm looking forward to spending the hour with you guys. Well, great. We uh, really appreciate you taking time this, this afternoon to to flesh out. And back on the 30th of um, May, and kind of what what kicked off our desire to, to have you to come on to talk. Um, you published, and people could find this link over at uh, at my my home blog if you hadn't had a chance to look at it yet. But over at War Council, you started a conversation with an article titled, 10 Questions West Point Does Not Ask Cadets But Should. And kind of to, to, to set the atmosphere here for those that may not have, have, uh, have read it yet or those that had to kind of get an extra layer to it, what brought you to the point to, to put that out? And why do you think those 10 questions as a start are important for young men and women who are in the process of being trained uh, to be leaders and junior officers? Well, that's that's a great question, um, and thanks for asking it. So I teach, like you mentioned, military strategy. Um, I teach an elective course. Now, it's, it's part of the Defense and Strategic Studies program. And so for kids within our major, it is mandatory to take my class. Um, but we have 130 kids in the major um, across uh, the, the sophomore, junior, and senior class. And there's over 4,000 cadets at West Point. So I'm really sort of a drop in the bucket uh, for um, really getting these topics in front of the cadets. And it, so that's sort of the, the general background, this sense of mind that, um, and it's not specific to me as a teacher. It's specific to the content in the course. Um, I feel like it's something that, that we ought to be providing every cadet, um, something that I think was missing from my education uh, when I was a cadet at West Point, and that was um, brought to my attention in a very profound way when I was in Iraq, um, and more in, sort of more specifically and in the nearer term, uh, West Point has undergone um, academic review. We brought in a group of external reviewers to take a look at the curriculum. You know, uh, we've we've. Uh, had a fairly set model for how we educate cadets for a long period of time. Um, there are, it does have a historical, you mentioned um, within the Navy, a, a technical education at West Point as well. Um, there's a background as an engineering school, and there's some tradition there, and they're considering shaking that up a bit, not necessarily reducing the amount of um, science, technology, engineering, and math courses that cadets take, 
um, but making um, disaggregating some of the way that cadets take courses. So, um, for example, if you're a humanita- uh, humanities major, you might take an engineering minor, and then vice versa. If you're an engineering major, you could um, minor in something uh, in the humanities. And it, they're looking at, at making these adjustments. And so I was sitting in the audience at, at what they called a town hall meeting. They, they gave us four of these. Um, and as I was listening to some of the changes in the curriculum, they were reviewing some of the dean's policies, the dean's um, objectives for how we educate cadets. And as I was watching, I noticed that um, the supporting objectives for a cadet's education, there are 31 different, um, well, I mean, flavors in which we want to teach with, with which we want to teach cadets. So um, we want to give them a background in math. And, and these 31 different characteristics would track with um, your uh, uh, sort of the reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, those would be the, the different characteristics. And as I was sitting there, I was recognizing that military strategy or the study of modern war wasn't one of the 31 um, objectives of the dean's program. And I felt sort of strongly that this is a gap. It's something that's missing. So my background, you could blend these two things together. I already sort of had this general background um, where I felt as though there weren't enough cadets that were taking a military strategy course. And then it sort of all came to a head while I was sitting in the audience there. And I just started writing these questions out because what I was looking for, and I hope I was able to connect with, was a practical list of questions that go unaddressed in a cadet's four-year experience at West Point. Um, And I I think by and large, I was successful. There was some pushback from some folks, but that's where the the list really came from. You know, I did get one of the criticisms I got was that this was sort of just clickbait, I think was the phrase. And um, that I was just looking to, to draw eyeballs, and, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, I haven't had anyone uh, uh, refute any of these questions in a in a real in a, a real substantial manner. I mean, the basic claim is a simple one: West Point systematically fails to address these questions, um, questions that would flow from the study of modern war in cadet education. And my, my evidence is pretty simple, that there's no required course in strategic studies or military strategy or modern war, and it's not one of those uh, 31 focus areas or the domains of knowledge which form those supporting objectives for the academic program. So um, I, I feel like I've gotten uh, something off my chest and it's gotten out there. And, um, that's, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk to it and talk about it with you guys today because I think it's very important. When you um, when you approach this, I mean, this, I, I, so not being a West Point alum by any stretch of imagination, but uh, does is there a context in which the classic uh, military, you know, Thucydides and and uh, the, the people Napoleon uh, would recommend reading are they are they part of the West Point curriculum? And is, are you just focusing on the on the more contemporary aspects of of modern uh, warfare and strategy? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question, um, and uh, there is a full year that every cadet gets, so two semesters of military history, 
and I want to be very clear about this, I think that's absolutely foundational and necessary. Um, I, I think the world of military history, in fact, I spend a lot of time, if, if, if you want to do anything in military strategy, I think that um, military history is incredibly um, important, uh, but I think that it's not enough. Um, so uh, it's, military history um, is, about, uh, is about conflict in the past. And the course that I'm describing, that I feel like the kids are short of, um, is, is meant to prepare them for war as it exists today. Now, um, it, you know, because, specifically because, I mean, it, 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 I'm not going to send a kid that graduates from my class in the academy, we're not going to send them to refight uh, the Iraq war, although that seems to be becoming more likely these days. Um, we're not going to send them uh, to refight the Vietnam War. Um, we're going to send them uh, to a place that has new issues, new challenges, new competitors, new enemies, and they need to be prepared to ask the right questions of the environment that they're a part of. Um, you know, they need to study uh, modern war in its context, and um, and that's something that a military history course. Um, cannot provide. Now, um, we take kids, for example, we take cadets in our program on staff rides. I think staff rides are incredibly important. Um, studying Thucydides is incredibly important because what it gives you um, is a sense for two things. Um, it, it gives you a snapshot of what war was like uh, thousands of years ago 150 years ago or 50 years ago, and you can compare that to what modern war is like today. Um, and by doing that, you learn two really important things. You learn about what things are stable and what are continuities in war. You know, the fact that human beings are, um, are afraid uh, to die. Um, they're afraid of uh, making a mistake Sometimes they freeze up. You know, human beings are at the center of, of war. Um, that is consistent, and, and it hasn't changed. But there are some characteristics about warfare that, that are always changing, that are ever-changing. So, you know, one commonality, one consistency is that um, we've been carrying around weapons for a long time. Um, but the type of weapons have changed uh, from the first time uh, you know, an ape slapped another ape with a stick to today uh, where, you know, some cutting, truly cutting edge and um, science fiction-like uh, weapons are being developed. So um, I, you know, your mention of Thucydides, for example, is, is Thucydides forms a, a part and a reading and a, and a lesson in my course, but I think we can't stop with that. We need to connect those uh, historical uh, artifacts of, of war and warfare to what, how war is, is prosecuted and practiced today. The, um, kind of a, a, a longest question, but I wanted to tie a, a couple of threads here, cause I want to emphasize a couple of things to the, to the listeners. Uh, if they just read the intro that, that, uh, I had over at blog talk radio, because they only limit how many characters I can put in there, they're going to miss an important detail of, of your, your present position. 
that uh, I wanted to make sure that they knew of is, yep, you're assistant professor, but you are the only, you teach the only course connected to military strategy at West Point, uh, which I think you outlined pretty well. You know, one semester of one year, one course. And I've never been a big fan of, of educational college theory of the year gobbledygook phrase, and I, I kind of laughed at the 31 domains of knowledge. I'm sure somebody uh, got their master's degree in education coming up with that phrase. But I, I, sh- I share your concern when you mentioned you were sitting there in the audience and we're looking at you know what, what ultimately is the mission of West Point. And what do those young men and women who are going to put on their second lieutenant bars, the uh, the immense responsibility that they're about to embark on? And in an organization over the last 13 years or so, uh, has expended barrels of barrels in real and virtual ink on the whole concept of the strategic corporal. You know, why are they not talking about designing an academic program that takes that academic and that, those military stovepipes and blends them together to give leaders, uh, future leaders, the critical thinking skills they're going to need in order to do their job. And there's not just at West Point, I'm more familiar with the argument over at the Naval Academy, there's always uh, a battle between the civilian academics and those in uniform, um, you know, pushing back. Who was driving that whole 31 domains of knowledge that, at least from I think we're in agreement here, ignores one of the most important pillars or domains of it? And was there any pushback, or was it decided when they walked out the door everybody was going to agree? Was there any type of discussion, debate, or is it just delivered as a fait accompli? Well, Great question. Um, so this falls into the the dean's um, domain, so to speak. And this is part of this is really uh, this is the problem that you know we use this phrase uh, warrior scholar or scholar warrior whenever we talk about the cadets. But the reality is, you know, and we use that phrase because we're trying to avoid that sort of William. Uh, William Butler, William Francis Butler comment, you know, that we're avoiding a broad line of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man. But the truth of the matter is the way we develop cadets is entirely separate. In fact, a common phrase that you would hear at West Point is the dean's side of the house and the commandant's side of the house. I would imagine it's similar at the other academies um, because organizationally it's, it's simpler that way. And there's sort of a canyon um, between the dean and the commandant. Um, both programs grace the surface of, like, for example, the list of 10 questions I gave you, um, but they fall short of directly addressing them. Uh, military tactics focuses on the practical and the tactical. Building platoon leaders uh, solid like oak trees. And what I'm describing is more about seeing the forest of modern combat. And on the you know, from the dean's perspective, there's a lot of folks that assume that military history is enough and that international relations, the, the mandatory international relations and social sciences classes the kids take, that, that that's just enough and that military strategy is some sort of lesser included that, that gets addressed at the, at the edges of that. But international relations and political science, you know, it provides logic and theory at sort of the broadest level, but 
I don't think John Mearsheimer's offensive realism is all that relevant to a platoon leader in Afghanistan. I mean, in my opinion, we incorrectly assume that all cadets have a firm grasp of this, you know, this inexhaustive list of questions based on the sum total of the parts of their education. And, and they, they just don't. I know this because I teach it. And, um, you know, uh, and we'll get into it later, I'm sure. But I'm not looking to build strategists. I'm not looking to build me because the Army has invested more time, you know, extended amounts of education in, into building me into be a strategic planner. I want cadets with strategic understanding or what um, Colin Gray calls uh, strategic sense, you know, which is just sort of a baseline I think we should expect of all officers as part of the commission. But. Yeah, you, you've used the phrase uh, strategic con context in your, in your writing. Could you kind of discuss what strategic context is and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, well, for starters, uh, for, a, for uh, a, a new officer in the military, let's start with the idea um, that the Depart U.S. Department of Defense is the world's largest employer. You know, this is bigger than the People's Liberation Army. We're bigger than just about anything. Um, well, we are bigger than anything, and that's a fact. So just having a sense of context to where you fit within the Department of Defense, but then with, but also within your particular service. So, for example, I mean, if you're a naval officer, there are so many different tribes in the Navy. I mean, just having a sense for where you fit there, um, an Army officer, same thing. The interesting thing about the Army, I think, is that in J.C. Wiley's book, Military Strategy, um, he makes the he makes the the comment or notices that. For an arm, you know, an army officer or a, a ground-based military officer, you can't do your job alone. In, in fact, you're inherently joint um, because you are supported by the Navy and the Air Force uh, by virtue of the fact that we are an expeditionary military force. Um, so we're inherently joint. I mean, that's sort of a second uh, second thing. And then a sense of context is important because. When we need an officer the most is in combat. And there is no more disorienting um, experience than to be in combat. So for me, uh, and, and I, you know, I could probably go down a thread w towards uh, you know, why I think the contemporary environment sort of demands um, this sense. But, but I, you, know, I, you can call it strategic context or a sense of strategic or strategic sense, um, I, I've termed it strategic understanding in a, in a paper that's going to come out in military review this next edition, July, August, which should be shortly here. But I think there's two characteristics every single officer in the profession ought to have. Um, one would be sort of a comprehension of an ability to communicate the broad, you know, broad purpose for the use of force, you know, specifically why we're fighting. And then secondly, the relationship between uh, one's tactical action and national policy. So those, those are, you know, that's sort of a, a low bar, but I think it's, it, should be, it should be the standard. We should expect that, that all of our officers uh, can do those two things, that they understand why we're fighting somewhere and that they can connect what they're doing to the policy that we seek to accomplish 
wherever the commander in chief uh, directs us. So, yeah, um, I had a question. Uh, one of our prior guests, uh, Lieutenant Commander B.J. Armstrong, who uh, he'd be mad at me if I didn't mention the fact he put out a book about a year ago, 21st Century Mahan. He's um, also working on his Ph.D. over at King's College of London. And uh, listening to the show, kind of listening to how you were describing what you were looking at, was what over in the, the U.K. they would describe as the field of war studies. Is that kind of what you're looking at when, as far as talk about an intellectual or an academic discipline or area of a study, kind of an undergraduate, um, uh, I would term it almost like a minor, so to speak, in war studies as it is understood in the U.K.? Absolutely. So um, the program that I teach within is the Department of, pardon me, the Program in Defense and Strategic Studies, and it's modeled after King's uh, program in, in war studies. In fact, actually, the, the only reason that I'm, that I'm not myself working on my dissertation with King's is because I think so much of Colin Gray um, at, at the University of Reading, and I specifically sought him out uh, to to write uh, under his supervision, and uh, so the way that the United Kingdom um, has structured this sort of education, I think, is is the model. They are able to get away with the non PC term war studies. Um, we're not, uh, which is fine. Um, but the word, I think, strategic studies actually gets at the heart of the matter. Um, strategic, um, as defined, you know, the, de- the, the short definition would be uh, relating to the use of force. So the, the study of the use of force um, and how it, how it impacts the modern world. Um, to do that, of course, though, like I've mentioned before, I mean, uh, the, the problem with war is that there is no academic department. There is no academic discipline for war. And so we've had to sort of cobble together, and King's was the first program under Sir Michael Howard's um, direction. But um, what we've learned is that there's sort of three things about it, that studying conflict and war is inherently multidisciplinary. So the historians have something to teach us about it. The international relations theorists have something to teach us about it. The mathematicians do basic human psychology, I mean, uh, economics, all these fields have something to teach us. Um, and so we have to listen to all of those fields. And then secondly, we have to learn how to harness them um, using frameworks. Uh, one that I teach in my course is critical analysis um, out of Clausewitz's book on war. Um, and then lastly, the practice of military strategy um, and strategy in general is is a lot like um, playing a musical instrument. Um, it's a lot like, uh, you know, learning uh, to paint. Uh, you have to do it. I can't, I can't give you a book and teach you to learn how to play the piano. You have to practice it. And so actually that was, um, as an, you know, on, an, on another subject, that's why the, the website, that's why warcouncil.org, why it was born, because I was looking for a way that I could um, ignite a fire with my kids in terms of self-study and then self-practice. You know, um, 
practicing looking at a conflict like the one in Ukraine and writing a little bit about it, trying to um, further your understanding of the use of force in the modern world. Um, and then as in, in the, in, in the, uh, at West Point, we've developed a series of sort of physical events as well um, that, that do the same thing. Uh, and so those are, those are sort of the key elements or the hallmarks, I think, of, of a successful or, or useful uh, strategic studies education or war studies um, education. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned sort of a little bit of cynicism about theory and um, I have it too. I just was at a graduate conference at Reading and um, I actually wrote this down. Um, I heard someone use the word um, intertextuality and I didn't understand what it meant. Um, this person was really getting into the theory weeds and as far as I'm concerned and I think as far as most folks in that study war and conflict are concerned, um, theory only matters in as much as it's useful for practice. Um, as it as it as it aids the practitioner in guiding them through um, difficult and challenging circumstances. There's a um, for lack of a, a better phrase, and my co-host is indulging me with a follow-on question. Uh, is you know, operationalizing this concept? You and I share a little bit of a background that we both had the, the pleasure, and it was absolutely a pleasure to me. Um, to spend a lot of time with Commonwealth militaries. Uh, for me, it was mostly British with a little bit of Australian, New Zealand, and Canadian thrown in there. And part of their culture is something you mentioned earlier on in the show, but it's not a one-off. It is the staff ride. Uh, matter of fact, the, the deputy when, when I was in Afghanistan was an RAF group captain, and that was part of our weekly routine. Is somebody was assigned, hey, you're going, you're going to pick a, you're going to pick a battle, you're going to pick a conflict, and we're going to talk about it and how it relates to what we're doing right now. In addition, you know, walking the Vimy battlefield, uh, more than just walking, you know, the Omaha beaches, going into some of the the places in Germany from uh, uh, the Napoleonic, you know, the siege of Ulm, the whole nine yards. Uh, and we don't seem to have too much of that inculcated in our culture, something we didn't get from our, our formal British Empire background. And I especially see a lot of people in the DOD. We took them with us um, when I worked uh, in an allied context. Uh, I think a lot of the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, senior executive service, or senior GS who really get locked in and they're looking down their particular straw inside of their particular stovepipe and a lot of them don't have uh, a practical military background would really benefit from some of what we both have seen in the staff rides and the amount of work and the discussions and the perspective they can provide and uh, I've talked to a couple people at um, in Annapolis about this uh, last year because of the War of 1812 coming up there's some great places within a, a half hour's drive of, of Annapolis about you know the, 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 some of the battles leading up to the British march on Washington that would make great staff rides. Um, but it, at West Point, uh, you have in one of your articles a great picture of a bunch of the cadets in 1919 heading off to Europe to go walk some of the battlefields there. Is there anything approaching that Commonwealth? feeling, understanding, and appreciation of what that staff ride and that practical walking through history can give to somebody 
is trying to build their intellect to to join the profession of arms? Well, I I would say yes, um, but again, this is sort of um, piecemeal and ad hoc and specific to certain parts of the academic program. So it is not a requirement for a cadet to go on a staff ride while at West Point, but it is a requirement for a cadet in the Defense and Strategic Studies program at West Point to go on a staff ride. And, you know, within our program, this very much is a is sort of a culminating event. It's a very important event. It's part of our capstone course. And, I, I you know, I, I don't know there there is no it's it's amazing I actually it's funny you should ask about this I just wrote a paper on the staff ride um, and it's probably not I think it's not publishing until the till the fall but um, the the current army the Center for Military History guide for a staff ride the governing document is 27 years old um, it was written in 1987 um, so it could use a refresher and the fact that we spend, you know, we spend money on staff rides, um, but with that, we don't really, we sort of just assume that it's valuable. Um, I think it is, provided that we put enough work into it. Um, but, it, you know, when I, when I think about the staff ride, um, particularly towards the end, um, one thing that's really useful is to imagine sort of a simple thought experiment. I mean, imagine that we've, We've gone for a couple of days to Gettysburg, which is what we do every spring with my cadets. And imagine we've, we've just finished. We're in the beautiful new visitor center. And I, want, I, I sort of sit them down and I ask them to imagine a simple thought experiment. I ask them to reverse the staff ride. What if, you know, sort of using a time machine, you could bring your assigned individual from the battle to undertake the same learning event only you would take them to a recently concluded battle in Iraq, you know, something from Iraq or Afghanistan. So you could, you could bring back um, uh, General John Reynolds, or you could bring back um, General George Gordon Meade, um, or, you know, a, a more junior soldier, and you could take them to Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, I started thinking about what that person might ask. They might ask, did you volunteer to fight? Do you still use direct fire weapons? Is it, is it hard to synchronize military movement? Do you guys still use cover? Uh, do communications still get mistaken? Do you still disagree with your superior's decisions? Uh, were you mentally prepared to send soldiers to die? And was, was any of this fighting worth it? Um, the, tr the truth is that soldiers today likely have more in common with those that fought 150 years ago at Gettysburg than almost anyone they know, including their family or their high school friends. Um, and this is due to the simple fact that they, like us, um, chose the profession of arms. And it's just sort of chronology and, and clothing that separates us. And so we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, it's just that we happen to be the ones looking back on them, it's just as, you know, you know, someday someone will look back on us. And I, I, this is sort of, uh, I haven't made this argument, but I would consider it an, an extension of the, the 10 questions list or the, the second question of 10 or a second list that I developed. Um, but I think 
or I feel like there's so much educational value from that experience and that it ought to be necessary or required for all of our cadets. And, and I, would, I, would, I would make that true. Uh, I, I would believe that to be true for both the Navy and the Air Force, although um, there's a lot of stuff that I don't understand about the other services. I, I do my best. Um, but uh, there's, there's just so much there, I think. And, and by the time we're done with a weekend taking the cadets on a staff ride, a real one, with real reflection, written reflection for the first time, they often come back and they'll say to us that this was uh, the most formative event of their four years at West Point. And it's, it's not hard to see why that's the case. Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant. I mean, I, it also leads me to segue into the, one of the other essays that, that you wrote about, uh, about war doesn't, uh, it's about rhyme. It's about that, that alleged Mark Twain quote about war, when warfare rhymes. Cause I think that really is, is what you're talking about. I mean, the experience, you, you use uh, a couple of examples of, of uh, the, 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 the crater in the American Civil War and what the Syrian uh, rebels did uh, in, in blowing up a, a military base. You used Restepo uh, and an and a, uh, uh, elevated site that Washington um, occupied during the Revolution, and you've used a couple of other examples. Could you kind of go through that? That process. I mean, you're talking about in, in the in the essay. You're really talking about the uh, strategic culture on and tactics. Could you could you sort of uh, uh, duplicate that here in a, in a short period? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the, the basic the basic idea is sort of a simple one. Um, it's that playoff of what's you know often the kind of ideal really well. to. Yeah, often been attributed to to Mark Twain um, that um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And and my my adjustment or my paraphrasing was that warfare does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And Sir Michael Howard, who we mentioned a minute ago in conjunction with King's College, the War Studies program, but he once said pretty much the same thing, because as he put it, after all allowances have been made for historical differences. Wars still resemble each other more than they resemble any other human activity. Um, and that's because the, the, the broad parameters, you know, when you're driving down the road, there's sort of, uh, you know, there's lane markers. The broad parameters, those lane markers in warfare are, are pretty much the same. Geography is, is pretty much the same. Um, human beings, the ones actually conducting the fighting, are largely the same. Um, you know, there are some, some adjustments. There have been changes, and we have different weapons and uniforms, but, but there's a lot of things that remain the same. And so one thing, the thing that sparked it was I was sitting there watching the evening news with my wife, and um, we just put our daughter down um, to bed. She usually goes to bed at 7. We DVR the news, and we're, we're watching it. And the first thing in the news was that the um, – the Syrian, one group, one of the many factions of Syrian rebels um, t- tunneled underneath a Syrian army checkpoint and blew it up. And there's this massive explosion, and, and it's documented. It's on YouTube. You know, I think I included a link to it. And I've done a staff ride uh, to the, on the Overland campaign, and um, the battle of the, I've seen the, the ground where the Battle of the Crater happened. 
And so I started with that. I said, what are the things, those are, that's two circumstances in which a, an army or a ground force tunneled under another fixed position, enemy position, and, and then blew it up. And what are the things that are the same and what are, you know, what are the continuities and what are the discontinuities? And then similarly, I sort of moved on to, uh, so from below ground to above ground, um, the film Restrepo, um, which I think the world of, and actually Sebastian Younger, the, the writer and director, has, a, has another documentary out very shortly, or if not, it's already out right now, um, called Korengal, which is um, which I, I recommend not having even seen it. But, um, you know, there's a, a part in that book by Sebastian Younger called, the book's called War, where you have these guys, this small unit, a platoon, just a couple squads of a platoon, I think, um, in the middle of the night, uh, digging in an observation post over the valley. And then they spend the whole day fighting over it. And eventually, by the end of you know, a 24-hour period, they've, got, um, they've outmaneuvered opponent. Similarly, it reminded me of the Dorchester Heights of the American Revolution. General Washington bringing the guns um, up over the harbor and forcing the British to leave on St. Patrick's Day, which is just another reason to drink at Boston in March. But um, the second one, uh, the next one that I came up against was, uh, you know, technological gains and speed and accuracy in wartime reporting. Um, and I had just read something uh, by the New York Times about their ability, the, the difficulty of uh, confirming the accuracy of a video from the Ukraine. Uh, a rebel group in Ukraine was shopping around a video of uh, something that would look bad, uh, it, it would make their opponents look bad. And the New York Times had great difficulty in verifying this video. And, and the public editor for the Times, Margaret Sullivan, I think is her name, um, was discussing how difficult it is with this new technology. And I had remembered from uh, some reading I had done on uh, the Telegraph uh, during the Civil War, how difficult it was, uh, for example, following the Battle of Gettysburg for people in Richmond um, to uh, know with any sense of accuracy uh, how the, the battle had gone. And the Richmond Dispatch, I can't remember if it was in the Richmond Dispatch, but it was a, a local newspaper wrote um, in their um, editorial section that, that, that they, they hated this infernal technology because it, uh, it caused them these errors, that, that it was so difficult for them to interpret it uh, for good or for ill. And, and uh, they even sort of, you know, joked that um, any time you know that a report is inaccurate, when the report comes through that General Lee has taken 40,000 prisoners, that it was the equivalent in, in algebra of using X for a quantity that you didn't know. And, um, you know, th there's, th so there are continuities about um, this, this feature of conf conflict. And, of course, there are, are you know, discontinuities. I mean, there are, there are different problems. One is, a, is an, a, a, 
a, a written medium, almost like texting through electronic wires, and then the other one is visual, and that has a different um, effect on the audience. Uh, so in the end, what I came to was just the, the conclusion that, that warfare never repeats itself. You know, the circumstances are never the exact same. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to come to that conclusion. Um, but that it does rhyme. There are some things that you always, it always rhymes. There are some things that are, that are very, um, very similar as long as those broad parameters that I mentioned uh, remain the same. Something else that um, rhymes in the military world. Excuse me for a second. It's actually good to have a cough button. The uh, are, are some of the, the the arguments and the counter arguments that that always seem to come back. Um, you know, I remember as a as an O four uh, when nine eleven took place that uh, one of the first things that you saw pretty fast were a lot of the pe- old Vietnam hands. Uh, were saying, I told you so. I mean, it, Tom Rick's book, Fiasco, even mentions a, a couple of the people who, who had experience of counterinsurgency in Vietnam try to get in touch with uh, uh, the people who they had known in the Army. They were basically told, we're not interested in what you have to say. Well, we all know how that worked out. Coin had a renaissance. We started study, you know, studying it, doing it right, relearning the lessons that have been around for centuries. And what we've seen in the last two years is the lack of a better phrase, the traditional army, the anti-coin types have come back in the woodwork, have really kind of beaten some of the, the, the coin advocates as if it's almost a binary thing where you either coin's primary or you forget about it. And it, you know, anybody who looks at what the rhythms and the repeats are, we know it's going to come back again. And I, I would make the assumption that where you are in West Point, that that coinista versus contra coinista argument back and forth has that started to settle to an appreciation where we're not going to get to where we were in the the 1970s and 80s where we just decided to forget about something because it was uncomfortable or are we going to be able to inculcate and keep a lot of those counterinsurgency lessons that we paid for in blood so when this nation needs those skills again. We don't have what we happened, what happened a decade ago, where people were getting on phone calls offering help and were told to, to sit down and shut up. Are we going to keep these lessons? In, a, in one word, yes. Um, there's, I'd be a pretty poor guest if I left it at that. But um, Secretary Gates has used this phrase that, that as a military and as a country, we have a, a 100% um, we are we are perfect in our record at predicting conflict, which is to say that we are 100% of the time wrong. And you know, you to to think of a military force. I mean, there's a lot of cynicism um, that people have when you when you. Uh, I think that there was a, a phrase that was in vogue for a period of time that we wanted to develop an army of pentathletes. Um, and you know there is a you know using a phrase like that it, it engenders cynicism, but the basic idea that we ought to expect from our military, and I say military, not army, air force, or navy or marine corps, I say military, meaning all of them, um, we should expect, and when I say we, I mean 
the American people should expect that their military is prepared to fight any kind of conflict that that the nation would so deem important. Um, there, there's a great story. When I teach land power, for example, um, Yellowstone National Park, we designated it the world's first uh, national park in, I think it was 1873, but we didn't protect it. We didn't have a National Park Service at that time, so we sent some squadrons of cavalry out to defend the park. Um, and in fact, it was the, the U.S. Army secured Yellowstone National Park for 30 plus years. And actually, the, it was it was all up. It was until uh, it wasn't until 1918 when the National Park Service was created. And you can still see it today in the National Park Service, the brown round that they wear, the headgear. Um, if that is what the nation asks of the U.S. Army which at, at its core, that is holding and controlling territory, then that's what we are to do. And so there's two things there, two mega points I would make. One, we never know for sure what's coming next. And then second, the American people ought to be, ought, they, this, this is what they've paid for, a military force that can handle and respond to any and all contingencies that are important to the country. And so anyone that, that sees the, the dial, you know, feels like we should dial, you know, far to, towards one direction, you know, uh, optimizing for fully for counterinsurgency, or anyone that, that wants to turn the dial all the way back to a, to a heavy armor force. And this is just army specific. I apologize for the air force and the Navy folks listening. I just, it's what I know better. Um, anyone that suggests a hard turn in either direction, I think is, um, either wrong or, uh, just, uh, you, you shouldn't listen to them all that much. Well, does it, does that lend itself to a, a, a bifurcation of force where you have one group that is heavy armor, you know, because you got to have heavy armor, and another group that is, and we we do have this fight in the navy, by the way, you know, the the big yeah. ship guys and the and the little ship guys, and um, and then you got the coin guys. I mean, is that is that a split that's always going to be there? Because in order to do our missions, we have to be semper gumby. I mean, semper flexibilis, whatever you want to say. We've got to be so flexible that we we have to have all these people. I, that's a really great question, and it's actually, I mean, it's something that's been kicked around for quite a, amount of, you know, a while. You know, my um, favorite professor at West Point when I was a cadet, uh, Dr. Don Snyder, a retired colonel in the Army, wrote about that. Um, I know Thomas uh, Barnett wrote about that, sort of what he referred to as a sysadmin force and, a, and a, a, a real hard contingency force, a strike force almost. Um, and I know that that's being knocked around right now the 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 concept in vogue i think in the army is to push armor into the national guard to be called up in time of contingency well where does that leave us what what would my two cents be um i think no matter what you do in all services you have to have a ready i mean we've simplified this into sort of heavier um heavier and harder uh, versus um, lighter and um, more coin-focused. Um, 
no matter what you do, uh, you don't you you want to maintain a committed cadre uh, dedicated to those primary tasks that is that is always prepared and ready, um, and you want a group, and then you want a large body or mass uh, of flexible Semper Gumby, whatever you you know we'd like to call them, people that are able to as a secondary. Um, secondary task uh, to support and fall in and learn quickly and adapt to the combat that is, that is called for at that particular time. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we've, we've kind of got that, uh, you know, I was a field artillery officer in Iraq and um, I was there for over two years and um, we did have an artillery mission for a small part of that, but the first deployment, the first year from, the beginning, you know, from the ground war through the spring of 2004, we didn't fire a single shot, not a single round. Um, and I did not do any arti- traditional artillery tasks. I motorized, I was part of a cavalry squadron, and I performed, by and large, cavalry tasks that were specific to the Iraq war environment. Um, that should be what we should expect. Um, so you have this specialized, you know, specialized knowledge as a field artillery officer, but you're able, should the nation so need it, require it, uh, to perform basic ground combat soldier functions. And I, I, I would believe that the, that the same should or, you know, should hold true in the Navy and the Air Force, albeit understanding the fact, you know, th- there's some specialized tasks in those services that are, um, you can't do just as a pickup assignment. I mean, that I get. Uh, I can't jump into a jet, I, you know. But um, the basic idea, I think, uh, I, is probably the the most right model. And I say that with with an asterisk. Uh, there is no perfect. Uh, there's there is only learning faster than your opponent, adapting faster than your opponent. And I think that is the model that generally provides us the ability to adapt faster than our enemies. You mentioned at the start of the show um, some of the reactions you got to your, your 10 questions article and your, your other 10 questions article. Just kind of curious, what type of reactions did you get internally, meaning you know cadets or, or some of your peers at West Point, but also what type of feedback did you get externally uh, specifically from um, you know, field grade and, and above officers and your questions. Was there anything about your um, the responses you get that you found surprising, either in a positive or in a negative way? Well, that's uh, you know I got a number of uh, quite a bit of feedback. Uh, a lot of it was uh, critical, but but useful critical, and I I actually responded to quite a bit of it. And so, but I can thumbnail sketch it for you. So one of the first pieces of pushback that I got is that this is not suitable for cadets, that cadets and junior officers aren't equipped or expected to deal with these weighty issues. And my first response is that um, this is, that's uh, whether or not you think it's appropriate for them, the environment dictates and demands it. So let's consider just a few quick um, features of the contemporary operating environment. Um, there's more enemies on the battlefield in terms of non-state actors. So it's not just nation states, it's 
there's been a proliferation of militias uh, in different uh, on different fields um, that mean that we're fighting more enemies. Uh, secondly, these enemies have uh, diverse, multiple, uh, shifting political and tribal and religious reasons to fight. And I've described this as a, a Rubik's Cube, that they have a common military objective, but potentially shifting motivation. Um, consider that the Sufan group just released a report that in Syria, um, they've documented 12,000 foreign fighters from 81 separate countries. So think of all the different um, political motivations that bring those different individuals to the battlefield. I mean, this, this demands sort of a nuanced approach. But then beyond that, a couple of current Army initiatives, and this is specific to the Army, but the, um, the regionally aligned forces, the Army is, is trying to look more um, to get into the shaping business, you know, more like the Special Operations Forces. Um, and we're sending more junior officers to lead in, in more places faster than ever before. So they're getting out on the more battlefields as junior officers, and the context, the, the warfighting context is shifting. Um, you know, I mentioned the inherent jointness of the Army. Um, some of you have, uh, you know, some in the community have, have come into contact with strategic land power. But let me end with the last point, the feature of the environment Everything an officer does is on camera, especially if you're on the ground. Um, every human being, it seems, or within the next generation of officers' careers uh, will have a phone, which means they'll have a camera, which means they're an untrained civilian war correspondent. Um, we're headed to the same level of scrutiny that instant replay provides pro football. Uh, to paraphrase, um, uh, Rupert Smith, war, you know, he said war is amongst, he categorized this as sort of war amongst the people, but digitally this is war amongst all the people. And it subjects junior officers to a much greater examination um, than their predecessors. So, I, you know, we can say that we don't think the cadets and the junior officers are ready for this, but the environment that we're sending them to demands it. Um, I'll be brief because I know we're running up against time, but um, I also got a lot of pushback from old graduates who suggested that this was already a part of the curriculum, and we've talked about that, that it, it's it's factually inaccurate to say that, that it's a part of the curriculum. I mean, you, sure, you can stitch little parts and pieces uh, of this sort of education together if you're looking for it, but what about the kid that's a chemistry major that could be a great strategist and never gets exposed to these topics or subjects. So, I mean, that's, a, that's an issue for me. Um, and then lastly, you know, one other, um, just that, that I've got sort of my wish list of what I think are the most important things that cadets should learn and that other department heads or other programs, they all probably feel the same way that I do. Um, and that it's, it's hard to say that my ideas or my, my thoughts or military strategy class is more important, but uh, and I'm not suggesting that military strategy is more important, but certainly as important that a course dedicated to the study of modern war has, should have some time in the curriculum. Cadets take four semesters of math, four of history, foreign and engineering sequence. And do, don't we have at least room for a basic survey course in military strategy for all cadets? So that's some of the feedback that I got, some of the, the helpful criticism that, um, you know, that helped me think about, you know, and sharpen my argument 
I think about how I, I think about these things. And um, like I mentioned, the, the paper that comes out in Military Review this month um, reflects that. Um, we are getting down here to the point where they're going to cut off everybody. Let me ask a question about, before I let you go, what, what, what have you got coming out? We know you have a paper coming out in Military Review, and... Uh, and uh, you, your your uh, your blog site that you use is you've got more stuff coming out there on this uh, on these topics. Yeah, I can't help myself. You know, I'm I'm trying to write a dissertation here, but I keep getting sidetracked. I can't. I I, I just bump into stuff I like. Um, I I'll probably I'm writing something about uh, two films. One an Israeli documentary about Shin Bet, the gatekeepers. Um, that that I'm going to put up, I think, tomorrow. And then it, just another interesting idea. I just picked up Bill Bryson's book, uh, One Summer, America, 1927, and it covers Lindbergh's flight. And um, I started thinking about the Mitchell, um, you know, Mitchell's bombing of the, the, the naval ship um, to prove it as a technology. Um, why can't we do the same thing with cyber? You know, we keep uh, the, the naysayers about cyber are saying, because it doesn't cause physical destruction, um, we should forget about it. But let's make the cyber people prove that they can create physical destruction beyond Stuxnet. Um, so I'll probably write something about that. I, you know, I'm sort of a degenerate in that respect. I can't help myself. Um, there are other essays, but but those are the, the that stuff that I just mentioned is more short term and should be available pretty quick here. Yeah, Matt, thanks a lot for uh, taking time this afternoon, spending some time with us, and I uh, look forward to seeing that. And I think uh, um, uh, I think I can speak for Eagle One here. We both uh, suffer from that uh, variation of uh, adult ADD. It's uh, <laughs> kind of easy to get distracted, but it is an interesting world if you take time to think about it. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I really, really appreciate the hour. Enjoy having you on, Matt, and uh, – We'd like to have you back at some time because I got you know again like every every guest we have I have many more questions for you. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was actually going to ask you a question that involved me referencing Game of Thrones uh, in regards to Syria and Iraq, but I think we'll save that for another time. Uh, and for everybody who's, who's joining us, I hope you have a great July Fourth weekend. And I usually uh, take time to wish everybody a happy uh, Navy Day, but uh, we'll call it a good Army Day too, and we'll give you. a a hua there, Matt. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I uh, I like spending time with the guys in the other services, so um, I'll, I'll um, uh, say say a, a hail to the Navy today. Yeah, we really don't have a cute little phrase, but thank you very much. Farewell, let us swear It's a long, long
Lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.